Friends, thank you for, uh, for inviting me to preach. I was thankful that Dave thought of me when he, uh, when he was going to be out of town. Uh, and it was, uh, we've, we've been at Christ Church Mandarin for about a year now, and, uh, and we haven't exactly gotten to know the other churches because, unfortunately, on Sunday mornings, we are at church in Mandarin. And so we, uh, it, it's actually a, a great privilege and a great pleasure for us to be here to worship with you to actually get a feel and a flavor of your worship and of your people, and it actually is a great delight to my soul to see this church worshiping together uh, and to see that the homogenous group is actually a bunch of Christians that love Jesus and love his word and get to worship our great God together. And this is a, a, a particularly difficult passage. You can thank Dave for that. I already have. You can make it known to him that I, uh, I will hold this against him for quite some time. Uh, but honestly, the thing that makes it difficult is not that it speaks of something that is, uh, is uncomfortable, adultery with the adulterous woman. It's not that it speaks of a prostitute. It's, uh, it's particularly that for some of us, this brings up guilt and shame. Something, a a passage like this actually brings up in our souls fear and guilt and shame because what we realize is that we're not perfect, that we have failed. We have failed to, to pursue wisdom in all of its goodness and glory. But for some of us, it actually brings pride because we look at this and we say, well, well, goody, I'm not like that young, simple idiot. I've done it all well. I've done it all perfect. So friends, I encourage you, both the shameful and the prideful, don't let your shame and your guilt drive you into despair this morning. Let it drive you to the feet of your Savior. And for those of us who are prideful, because we have done this well, remember that when we're at the feet of Jesus, we're all the same. We're all the same. And he is the one who calls us right with God, not us. So let me pray before we begin and discuss Proverbs 7. Lord God, you are a great king above all gods. You are the one that we answer to. You are the one who gets to tell us what is right and wrong. You are the one who speaks. And Lord, I pray we would listen this morning. Would you open your eyes, would you, send your, would you open our eyes, send your spirit to show us wonderful and powerful and glorious things in this portion of your scripture. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. I've, I was reading a book about a month ago uh, called Hillbilly Elegy. If you have not read it or if you have not heard of it, I would really encourage you to. I'm generally not a guy who... Uh, reads autobiographies or novels. I generally wait for the movie to come out and watch that. So you know it's good if I read it in a week. Called Hillbilly Elegy, it's a story of a guy named J.D. Vance. He tells a story of growing up in a blue-collar Appalachian family, first in Jackson, Mississippi, and then in Middletown, Ohio. And it's actually a particularly difficult story. 
His mother, his mother is an addict, and he lives with her with his sister. She's addicted to alcohol and eventually pain medication and eventually heroin. And uh, his relationship with his mother is pretty central in this book. And it's difficult. It's often chaos. And he tells a story once about a time when he and his mother got into this really intense fight. And you know it's intense because he and his sister left the house. And they walked down the the road to their grandmother's house and stayed with her for a few days. And they didn't speak to their mother for days. He says he doesn't remember what the fight was about. He just knows it was really intense. And he eventually his mother comes to him and to his sister and she apologizes. And he says, this was an especially good apology because it was an especially bad sin. And you can tell that after she apologizes, something's going on in J.D. as a young 12-year-old boy. There seems to be two voices speaking to him at once. One is saying, forgive her. She made a mistake again, yes, but forgive her, move on, move past. It's not that big a deal. The other voice says, no, it's too dangerous to forgive. If you forgive and you speak to her again, then she's going to hurt you again. And friends, this conflict is chaos to the very core of J.D.'s soul, to the very core of his being. And we we face situations like this every day. Maybe not as intense, but we have voices. We, We hear voices in our heads telling us what is right and what's wrong. And often this is how classic wisdom speaks. It speaks of the wise and the fool. It speaks of one voice and another. The wise are those who obey God, who live in God's world the way God tells them to live. And the fool is the one who decides and determines in his heart that I'm going to make my own way. I'm going to to blaze my own path. Proverbs 7 is similar to J.D.'s voices. There are two voices. There's the voice of the adulterous woman. She's the voice of personified wisdom. She tempts this young man into uh, adultery, into illicit sexual activity. And then there's the voice of the father warning his son not to turn toward evil, but to stay the path and to listen to his father's voice. And what we see in Proverbs 7 is is that there are competing voices enticing us to follow them. They're enticing us to follow them. One voice is the voice of folly, the voice of the adulteress, and one voice is the voice of the father, the voice of wisdom. But Proverbs 7 begs the question, why do we listen to these voices? Why would we listen to these voices? In verses 6 through 23, we're going to answer these questions, or we're going to answer this question. And in verses 6 through 23, we see that we listen to folly because she seduces us. She seduces us. This section of the proverb focuses on a narrative that reveals the, the tactics of the adulterous woman the tactics of foolishness, the tactics of folly. She seduces. Her voice is seductive, and it leads us towards evil. But what are her tactics? First, we see that she speaks into a vulnerable situation. 
How does the writer describe the young man? He's simple. I have seen among the simple. I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. What's it mean? Well, it means that he's naive. He's inexperienced. He's young, of course. We're all inexperienced and naive when we're young. But not only that, he lacks conviction. He is a man of few convictions. He hasn't had time or he hasn't actually thought about how he wants to live life. And so he just moves aimlessly. So aimlessly that listen to uh, the situation that he puts himself in. Not that he gets caught in, but the situation that he puts himself in. Seen among the simple, I've perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening at the time of night and darkness. Friends, he's on the road at night, walking toward her corner. Friends, he couldn't be in a more vulnerable situation. And what does she do? She takes advantage of it. That's what folly does. It doesn't respect your weaknesses. Sin doesn't respect your weaknesses. In fact, it takes full advantage of it. She looks for you to play the fool. Folly looks for you to play the fool. Seduction usually works this way in our lives. We're vulnerable, sure, when we're young, inexperienced. We haven't lived enough life to know uh, what is, what's right and what's wrong. We've, we don't know what's wise and what's foolish. But friends, we're also in vulnerable situations when our marriages are struggling. When husband is not doing what the wife asks, is not listening when wife is nagging because the husband won't listen. Friends, we're vulnerable when our kids are a mess, when they're acting out and we are at the end of our rope and we have no idea what to do. We're vulnerable when that stack of bills outweighs the money coming in. We're vulnerable when our bosses and our coworkers are exacerbating. We have vulnerable situations all the time, friends. And folly is looking for you to play the fool. It's looking for me to play the fool. And in those moments, the seductive voice of folly weighs heavy on our hearts. What is the second tactic? The second tactic of folly is that she speaks an enticing word. Listen to how the, the, the author of Proverbs uh, speaks of this woman's voice. She, verse 13, she seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. That's really, really expensive in this day and age. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. 
Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. Friends, she speaks an enticing word. She tells this young, vulnerable man exactly what he wants to hear. That's what folly does. It tells you what you want to hear. What does this man want to hear? He wants to know that he's wanted. And what does she say? I've come out to meet you. He wants to be wanted. He wants love. He wants comfort. The young man wants safety and enjoyment and pleasure and adventure. And this is how sin works. It preys on our desires. Folly preys on our desires and it twists them for evil with no strings attached. Right? She says, you're not going to get caught. My husband's a long way away. He took a bag of money. He's going to be gone for a long time. Friends, that's how folly speaks. It tells you you won't get caught. And it tells you everything you want to hear. My wife and I have been watching the Harry Potter series. Uh, we were listening to it on, uh, on tape on our way on vacation, and I got really excited about it, and so we watched it. Uh, and uh, if you know anything about the series, you know it's about good and evil. You know it's about this young boy named Harry Potter who survived a really intense uh, attack from, a, from the most wicked evil sorcerer to ever live. Now, of course, it's fiction because we know sorcerers don't exist. But he loses his father and his mother in, in, the, uh, in that event. His mother, in fact, saves him by sacrificing her life. And Harry will go on to fight this Lord Voldemort. But in the first book, in the first movie, The Sorcerer's Stone, or if you read the book, The Philosopher's Stone, Harry has a powerful stone called the Philosopher's Stone or the Sorcerer's Stone, and it's, uh, it's, this, it's a stone that Voldemort wants because he believes it will make him powerful again. He's weakened, and he wants it for himself. And so what does he say to Harry? What does Harry want most of all? He wants his family. He wants his mother and father back. That's a good desire. Of course, he's an orphan and he wants his family. This is what Voldemort says to him. Tell me, Harry, do you wish to see your mother and father again? Together we can bring them back. Just give me the stone. He promises something he, in fact, cannot give. And that's what sin and folly and the adulterous woman does. It promises something that, in fact, it can't ultimately give. It can't give you life. In fact, what does the author say? He does not know that it will cost him his life. Folly will cost us our lives if we run headlong into it. This passage forces us to examine ourselves, to see if we're playing the fool like the young man. So I ask you, are you playing the fool like the young man? 
Are you running headlong into folly? But she's not the only voice, is she? And that's the good news for us, isn't it? We're not only listening to one voice. We don't don't only get one way. See, because God has made another way. He, in all of his grace and goodness, has made another way for us. And he tells us what it is. We hear a voice in opposition to folly. And it's the voice of wisdom. And why would we listen to wisdom? Verses 21 through 27 tell us that we listen to wisdom because it leads to life. Friends, it leads to life. And I'm not talking about like existential afterlife life. I'm talking about like now life. Life in the here and now. That's what Jesus came to give us. So how does it do it? How does wisdom's voice speak? First, it speaks a protective word. It speaks a protective word. Let's read verses 21 through 27 together. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way of Sheol, which just means the grave going down to the chambers of death. Friends, with these biddings to listen to his word, to pay attention to his instruction, the father begs the son not to turn his heart towards wickedness because wisdom knows something that we don't. It knows the end. It knows the end. It has the end in mind. And so wisdom begs us to think about the end. When we look at verses 22 and 23, what is the warning? Friends, it's that if you run into this, into folly, it will only result in pain, in suffering, and in death. As an ox goes to the slaughter, he has no idea what's going to happen to him. As a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Wisdom forces us to contemplate our actions, to think about how our actions affect others, but also how our our actions affect our own souls. It forces us to contemplate the end. What good news that God tells us the end in the beginning. Thank God that he gives us the end while we're still living. What good news. But wisdom's voice doesn't only speak a protective word. It it loves us enough to lead us to human flourishing. Turn to, uh, to chapter 8, verse 32 and following. Chapter 8, it, it speaks of the many blessings of wisdom. It speaks of all the goodness. 
of, of seeking wisdom, of calling wisdom your sister and your intimate friend. And this is what the father has to say. And now, oh, my sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. You see, friends, it's not only that God wants to protect us from death, from eternal separation from him, but even death and pain in this life. He wants our lives to flourish in his world. He wants our lives to flourish. Not just after we die, but in the moment. Now, does that mean that everything will go well all the time? Well, you've lived long enough to say no. Of course not. We still live in a fallen world, in a broken world. But the Proverbs are here to tell us, hey, this is how you should generally live for human flourishing. It doesn't always speak to, uh, to the particulars. It doesn't always speak to the, the exceptions. It says, hey, this is how you, how you should live, and God wants you to flourish. And so what does he do? He actually gives you a whole book in the Bible to tell you how to live wisely, how to seek wisdom. And this actually transforms, totally transforms the way we look at the law. Didn't most of us grow up hearing that the law of God was, or at least experiencing and feeling that the law of God was a burden? It was burdensome. I can't keep it. I never measure up but it transforms the way we look at God's law. If he loves us enough to tell us what it looks like to flourish as human beings, shouldn't we listen to how he tells us to live? He tells us a way that is wise. He gives us a way to live. He restrains our evil hearts and he pushes us towards human flourishing. The wise man contemplates his actions, and what does he do? He weighs them against God's commands and against God's instructions. That's how the wise live. We listen to our Father. We keep his ways. We hear his instructions. We don't neglect them. And what are we? We are blessed. We are blessed because God blesses his children. And that's why Jesus came, wasn't it? that his life, death, and resurrection would accomplish life for us. Human flourishing, not only in the life to come, but in our present life. And you see, the problem with adultery and folly is that the appeal to sin, the appeal to a life lived in my own way, apart from God, it only results in death. It only results in death. Every time you or I try to live our lives in a way that gives God the stiff arm, we know it only ends up poorly. It ends up going very bad for us. 
because we're not living in God's world the way God tells us to live. You see, friends, God gets to determine what's right and what's wrong, what's wise and what's foolish. He's the one who gets to tell you how to live. You have been made his child. And so what do you do? You don't give your father the stiff arm, not a wise son. You sit at your father's feet and you listen to him because you know he knows better than you. He knows better than you. Because this is his world. And he gets to say what's right and what's wrong. He gets to tell you what's good and what's evil in his world. Because he still rules this world, friends. He's still in charge. He's not competing against Satan. It's not as if they're on the same plane. Friends, he is in charge. So I encourage you to listen to your father. I'll close with this. When I was learning how to drive, one of the first things my dad said to me was, put on your seatbelt, son. And uh, that was surprising, partially because I was 12, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, we were on the backwoods of a hunting club that we, we were uh, a part of, and, and I had grown up riding in the bed of my dad's pickup truck. And I had grown up, we had this big K5 Blazer that didn't have a back seat or seat belts. And I had ridden in the back for multiple camping trips, multiple weekends of my life. So I was kind of surprised, put on your seatbelt, really? Who are we gonna hit out here? But it stuck with me. That, those instructions from my father stuck with me so much so to the, that to this day I'm uncomfortable not wearing my seatbelt, even when there's airbags. And it served me well one day, the fall of my senior year of high school. I was driving this big, uh, ugly, four-wheel drive truck, and I was coming home from work. I had a long day. I was working at a national tire and battery. I was gross and greasy and dirty, and I put on my seatbelt. And about two minutes later, in the blink of an eye, a lady pulled out in front of me, and wham! My big truck hit her car. Her car buckled underneath my truck and spun around a couple times. Truck took off in the air. I landed. I was okay. I was okay. Why? I was okay because I listened to my dad. I'd listen to my father because he knew life better than I did. And if it was up to me, I wouldn't listen to him all the time. But that day it served me well. I walked away with minor bumps and bruises from a car, that, from a car accident that the police officer was surprised I lived through. So friends, I encourage you, listen to wisdom. It will lead you to life because God still rules God's world. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so good and so gracious that you give us instruction. Who are we, God, that you are mindful of us? 
This world declares your glory and your goodness. But you, God, tell us how to live. So Lord, would we listen to you? Would we be a people who listen to our Father and seek life, seek wisdom above all else? I pray in Jesus' name, amen.